0: Hi there, Glocal citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, and this week we have part two of my conversation with Mehmed Kamara. He is a human rights leader, researcher, activist, and development communications practitioner. With two decades of experience working with national and international development and human rights organizations in Africa and the United Kingdom. He is currently the director of the African Transitional Justice Legacy Fund, which is based in Accra, Ghana. Prior to joining ATJLF, he worked at Amnesty International's International Secretariat in London as Deputy Director of Global Issues and Acting Head of Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. He also served as the interim country director for Amnesty International Nigeria and as West Africa researcher. McMid has held posts with Oxfam in Sierra Leone and the UK and with Concern Worldwide in Sierra Leone. He has written several articles and reports on human rights and social justice issues for high-profile African and European publications and institutions. And if you missed it in the first episode, he first started as a journalist in Sierra Leone. So please, take another look and listen to the uh, part one of the conversation if you haven't already. And right now we're picking up the conversation where McMead is telling us a bit more about the work of the Africa Transitional Justice Legacy Fund and the impact they're making in the regions where they've just started to blossom and look forward to growing across the continent. So you're early on in this work. Here. And so I, I'm sure that you have some measures of what the impact is and what the impact can be. In your first forays in working with communities, what have you seen as been effective? And, and how have has the public and also governments received
1: your interventions or your works? Yes. so Thank you very much. Now this is where I market my achievements as an organisation. <laughs> so the ATJLF, and since we started making grants in 2019, 2020, has achieved remarkable progress in terms of reviving, firstly reviving a conversation about transitional justice, because most times people deal with conflict and they just want to move on to something else, but they haven't actually addressed the, the, the drivers of those conflicts, the root causes of those conflicts in a way that will prevent a recurrence. So what we have been able to do just by working with uh, a selection of um, civil society groups and survival groups was to bring those conversations back. Because if you don't remember your past, you are bound to repeat them. And, and for us, we want people to be reminded in you know, through forms of memorialization on others, but also for that reminder to serve as a warning. You know, to prevent repetition. So we have been able to do that in, in Sierra Leone, we've been able to do that in Liberia by reviving those discussions. And, and we were doing that in not in a kind of very elitist way, because we are working with the people who were affected directly. So survivors talking about the experience, survivors engaging with other actors to say this is, this is what happened to us. You know, don't let it happen again to others. You know, for Sierra Leone, for instance, we are celebrating today. Incidentally, it's the the uh, 23rd of March when the first gunshots were fired, at the start of the war in Syria 31 years ago. So if we don't have these conversations and we're seeing situations where some of those those hallmarks of the conflict are beginning to re-emerge. Issues around social cohesion and, and fragments in, in in the society are kind of popping up. So we we have made significant uh, progress in, in reviving the conversation and getting people to actually ask the right questions and holding local authorities accountable for putting the structures in place. Another thing that we've been able to do is support primarily civil survival-led organizations. So if you look at our grants, we made an in, we, we were quite intentional in whom we give money. And, and we don't just give money, we provide technical assistance. Some of our grantees have never received money from anybody, but they've been doing the work on the field, providing psychosocial counselling and support for victims in IDP camps, in places like Mali and in Nigeria. And uh, uh, But they don't, or in Gambia, but nobody gives the money because they don't have the structures. They don't have that kind of typical NGO set, set up. So what we have been able to do is to to break down those barriers that prevent people who do the work from accessing the resources that they need to do the work. So we go to them and say, okay, we know that you're doing this work, you, we know that you need resources, not just financial, but also technical. We are here to help you provide. And sometimes it's just small amounts, $10,000, $20,000. But the amount of work that these people will do with that, um, that money is just incredible. It can never be quantified. So that is what we've been doing. And we are very proud to see that some of the organizations that we do, we have uh, a significant percentage of our grantees who are first time recipients of any form of donor amount money from Liberia, to Mali, to Sierra Leone, to the Gambia. And what another thing that we did we were quite proud of was not just to wait until they come and meet us, because we are in Ghana. We actually went to those countries, asked people, spoke to people, and then meet them in their own areas of convenience, in their in their space of convenience, and talk to them and say, okay, this is, we have this money, this is our agenda. What is your plan? What is your agenda? How can we work together to advance this agenda? Not just for you, not just for our institutions, but also for the society in which you're operating and for this cause that you you, you have passion for. So we go out. So we are different from other donors who wait until people until the call for proposal is out. We actually do direct solicitation. So that is uh, something. And as a result of that, we've been able to fund organisations who have come up with very innovative ideas. For example. The Center for Memory and Reparations in Sierra Leone has um, built and set up the continent's first tomb of the unknown civilian as a form of memorialization to the thousands of civilians who were killed during the, the 10 year war in Syria. You know, most of the time when people set up memorial sites or tombs, they do it for the soldiers, the fighters, huh? the fighting factions. So you, you will hear about the tomb, of the, the tomb of the unknown soldier, but you will never hear about the tomb of the unknown civilian. So through our grants, we have created Africa's first tomb of the unknown civilian. We are also supporting uh, uh, an organization in Liberia called the Liberia Massacre Survivors Association. From their name, you could tell where they are already, sure. and that's the background. So, what this group is doing is to identify massacre sites and mass graves that the Liberian Truth and Reconciliation Commission was unable to identify or to mark and recognize because, of course, they were not adequately resourced and they didn't, the mandates and time did not permit them to do so. So, we're working with the survivors, the survivors of these mass uh, massacres, to tell us where the this, this sites are. And what they have done is not just go and protect the site, they've also digitized those sites so that these records will stand the test of time. They will be there for posterity. And, and just to go back to the, the Tomb of the Unknown Civilian, what the guys and the Center for Memory and Reparations did was to collect the soil from each of the massacre sites, each of the identified massacre and mass grave sites that the TRC recognized, and use that soil to build the tomb. So it, it is a collection of people of the lives of those people who nobody will remember or nobody will know, but they are now being remembered and are, their souls are being respected and being dignified. And that is a form of healing. So we're doing that in Sybilin, in, in we're doing that in Liberia. We're also supporting the digitization of war records. In Nigeria, we're working with, again, coming back to my question about the connection between my professional background as a journalist and as a media person, we brought that into the transitional justice grant making, where we're supporting media institutions to publicize and disseminate the in- initiative, the transitional justice initiatives that we are, we are supporting in the various countries. There's an organization called Human Angle in Nigeria. Human Angle Media works to help in increasing the capacity of uh, citizens, of victims and survivors to tell their own story in their own way through a platform that will not charge them money. So they're telling they're their stories out. So we're supporting them. And as a result of our support, they are, have attracted additional support from bigger foundations and donors. We are, we're doing the same for the Gambia, where because Jameer, as a dictator, so many crimes that he committed in, in the Gambia, one of which was to claim that he will heal people who are witchcraft. Mm-hmm. So there was a whole witchcraft campaign, a campaign against witchcrafts, so-called witchcrafts in in Gambia. And many of those people who were called or arrested and described as witches were mostly old women, widows, people in societies who who were just vulnerable generally. So what these people experienced on the journey, many of them were forced to drink poisonous concoctions and subjected to all forms of Torture, cruel, and inhuman and degrading treatments yeah. in, in the guise of Jameh trying to heal them. And what and we were ostracized from their communities. And what happened was people politicized that. So people were using that campaign to point their neighbors and opponents who they had issues with. So if you are if you belong to a political party and you're here and I don't like you. I will i will that point to you and say so this person is a witch yeah. and then you get arrested and then and taken to those witches' healing houses and stuff. So many of these people came back to their communities, to their families, broken, mm-hmm. deeply betrayed. traumatized, yeah. betrayed and, and distressed. And, and many of them because the stigma is already associated. So they couldn't live in the communities, they couldn't interact with the community, with their communities anymore. So as a result, they, they're just in their homes. So, we are supporting an organization called Women's Association for Victims Empowerment, WAVE, in the Gambia to work with these people, promote reconciliation, and, and promote it in a way that is not the kind of Western model of reconciliation. This is about, they call it in, in, in local Wolof, Kaira Bengo, Kaira Balundi. It is a, a Madingo uh, Wolof um, phrase for peace talks, for peace building and reconciliation. So, you sit under the tree. You discuss again in form of um, reconciliation and yeah. healing, but doing it at the local level. So you don't have to come and stand in front of a mic to yes. narrate your ordeal. You stand or sit under a tree in your place of convenience in your community with all of us there telling your stories about what happened and uh, the perpetrators in that same community coming out and apologizing and asking for forgiveness. So yeah. that's it. Uh, and then also being people being re embraced into their communities sure. to ensure that they feel dignified again, their human dignity restored. Well, so that's, those are the kind of things that we are very proud of, those kind of locally led initiatives. We, uh, I cannot go on and tell you yeah. about the long list of other <laughs> projects and over 42 of them that we have funded. But we, the, the progress or the achievement that I think we could, I could perhaps summarize, um, in addition to reviving the um, transitional justice discourse, in addition to supporting locally-led initiatives, is the, the the policy level, at the policy level, engaging with governments to ensure that transitional justice mechanisms are embedded into governance issues, uh, giving premium. We are supporting, for instance, the popularisation of the AU TJP, which is the African Union transitional justice policy framework. Now, the AU TJP is a framework, a document that the AU, in collaboration with civil society organizations put together, we spent over 10 years working on it to ensure that states have a tool to use to deal with the wrongs of the past, especially um, for post-conflict societies or societies dealing with transition. So we're supporting the popularization of that. We are also proud of the achievements in terms of our work around engaging women-led institutions and youth institutions or youth-led organizations that, that target um, the interest of youth. For instance, supporting the establishment of a transitional justice clinic, where people understand. I was speaking to a nephew they, the other day. They don't they didn't even know about the war in Sierra Leone. Because oh, it's, not, exactly. yes. and, uh, it's not been taught in schools. And uh, people in universities don't talk about the war in a way that some of us who experienced it will know. So, and, and, and because of that, they are susceptible to be used for violence, to go and commit violence when it comes to elections and others. So, taking that conversation to that generation mm-hmm. is really crucial. And one way of doing it is through the form of a clinic where people can engage at their own level, use their own diction to, to help with education. Uh, use of technology, I think I mentioned the digitization, the digitization of the um, uh, war records in, in Sierra Leone. We, as an institution that is the ATGLF, we want to do transitional justice grant making differently. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about transitional justice, most times people just focus on going to court, like I said, going to court, working with and um, doing TRC and um, going to the ICC. We want to broaden the horizon, broaden the scope going beyond the regular boundaries of transitional justice intervention. And so we are, we are even supporting civil society to engage non-traditional TJ institutions like the tech industry, working with tech groups to do the, the digitization I mentioned, mm-hmm. to digitize the records. Like civil society, you know, we have our own log frame approach to doing things. But when you work with people in the private sector or in the, in that in the other sector, we come with new ideas that you will not think of. Mm-hmm. We come with new approaches that will that will be impactful and uh, that will just outlive right. the, the life of the refounded project. Yeah. Legacy
0: target. Exactly,
1: exactly, <laughs> exactly.
0: You took us on a bit of a tour um, with your projects. And so I think this is a good segue into my local speak question. So we want to hear what you hear. So can you give us a word, a phrase or a saying that it is A meaningful part of your local experience and how or why you came to value it as local speak.
1: That is that is an interesting one. Okay. Um, Let me try and give this some thoughts. Because I probably need to segment the question, right?
0: Okay, so maybe by different geographies that you've lived in as local or yeah, or as different functions of the speech, right? So in this context or that context.
1: Yeah. So, so for me, because I consider myself as a Pan Africanist mm-hmm. uh, for a start, when the opportunity came to relocate back to the motherland, it was like that. Sure. I didn't even have to negotiate with family, of course, yeah. but it, it was just a no brainer. Uh-huh. And uh, so and I, I left the UK at a time when I needed to leave the UK. Sure. Just after Brexit, which was the 2018 elections that happened, and things were just going down south in terms of respect for humanity or value for humanity, increase in racist and, and racial um, experiences and stuff. So I, I, I needed to come back home to, I, I don't want, I want to avoid this cliche of coming back home to contribute. I needed to come back home to relearn mm-hmm. being African. Mm-hmm because I've been out for 10 years. I wanted to, although I was working in the continents as a researcher and then being in Nigeria and all this, I wanted to come back home and relearn and provide an opportunity to explore other um, spaces and knowledge that the continent is offering, which is why moving from hardcore human rights research and advocacy into transitional justice grant making was an opportunity for also for learning. I'm a a believer in, and in the doctrines of Paulo Ferreira, the Brazilian writer and educationist, I I believe in constant educating and edification. So coming back to the continent was a form of me coming back to school to learn from the rich area of knowledge that is inherent, that is here, that is based here, that is being provided by the people that we are working with. I started by saying, by describing my craft as working with and for people. If you want to work with people, you need to learn how to work with people. Mm -hmm. If you want to work for people, you need to learn what is there for them, what they want, you know, what kind of um, support they will need, which is what we're doing, which is why we go and do direct solicitation to go back and ask people, what can we do to support your cause? So coming back to the the question of the global, I think it's uh, for people like us who've moved different continents. Remember going to Southeast Asia to do research on labor rights violations in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Travel to and when there was there were times when I would go to the farmlands, so or I would be the only black person among. Yeah. And even though it's in the global south, I was still different. Yeah. I came to Ghana. I'm I'm just Charlie, and nobody would like look at me, you know, differently. In the UK, when I was there, I would go to meetings, especially as you go as you grow within the the ladder, institutional ladder. Your color code begins to kind of just reduce because you yes. you begin to see the your words. fewer people of your like. Huh? Yeah, I'll be in meetings and I'll be I'll just take a look around and I'll be the only black face and voice in the room. Mm-hmm. Here, so you can, my entire team is African. Yes. All my grantees. We we actually are very purposeful with our approach to grant making. We we promote. Afrocentrism it promotes pan-africanism because it is the lifeblood of this institution it is if we want to transform the continent we need to ensure that we transform the continent together with the people in the continent and that is what atglf is our vision is to promote african agency in africa so coming back was was to come and, and be part of that process to come and uh, not just claim to give, but to primarily receive the the knowledge that that has been shared. And then as as I receive, and then I give out to those who who definitely need it. And I think it's a journey that is going on and it will continue. And Ghana was a perfect destination for the learning process. And uh, not just because it is stable, but because of its history with Mm Pan-Africanism. And because of its, its rightful place in the continent as the beacon of not just democracy, but on stability and progress, but again, Open Africanism. Yeah. So we're we really here to not just preach it, but to practice it mm-hmm. in a choice of country for the work that we do and, and the choice of country for the learning that we want to share. Yeah.
0: yeah. So you said one word, here you're just telling...
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
0: Would you say that that is kind of a Ghana local speak for you, Chale?
1: Yes, I, I, think Chale. Uh, I, I, I have so many local kind of words and phrases that I could use, but for now I'm in Ghana, so yes. Chale, Chale <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> okay. Because I think the reason why I like Chale is it's gender neutral. Yes. Uh, so whereas in in uh, Nigeria, Oga is kind of uh oh, is bad. yes is a business yes. Yes, it's kind of you know uh masculine and uh, in Sierra Leone we have words like bobo or bra which also is is a distinction of your status in society wow. the bobo is the junior and the bra is the senior um, and again but it's all refers to oh, yeah. man yes, yes Charlie I've seen yeah. everybody, everybody's chale, right? Right. <laughs> and it's like, oh, chale.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so interesting because so many people say chale is local speak for them here in Ghana mm-hmm. because it it's one of those like adaptogenic words, uh-huh. I guess, for lack of a better way to describe uh-huh. it, because it means friend. Uh-huh. It means, oh, hey, what's up? What's uh-huh. going on? Uh-huh. Or, oh, it's like an expression of like, ah, uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, so yeah. that's a good one. Yeah. Yes, yes. 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 Mm-hmm. So you, you, I, I love what you just said about, you know, coming back to learn. And, and that mm-hmm. was a really meaningful part of this discussion. What do you do? Well, the question is, what is your favorite or most innovative mindset hack? So this is something that you imagine, something that you know of, something that you practice. So how do you get your mind hacked into a zone of whether it's productivity or relaxation or just being? How do you do that?
1: Uh, so, as, as somebody who's had a journey with a number of experiences, I have used an, uh, a range of approaches to help with my mindsets and um, shifting, but also mindset protection. Mm-hmm. And um, in a war, during the war in Sierra Leone, I used to, to read a lot of books. You know, and, and listening to music. I do listen to a lot of Fella songs and Bob Marley songs, um, Northern Heritage songs. Uh, reggae, of course, and afrobeats are my favorite uh, way to reset the mind, but also to protect the mind from distractions, you know, when, when thinking. Uh, so I, I also do reconnections with uh, issues by reading books on history and hist- histories of conflict and stuff. So for instance, I was reading, I recently read the, uh, the autobiography of a former president of Sierra Leone, um, President Sijan Kabar, who actually led the peace process and was president when Sierra Leone um, declared the war done done, which is a phrase, a Sierra Leonean phrase for the war is over. A creole phrase for the war is over. So, uh, reading just reading his books was able to also reset the mind. I was also able to kind of reposition me for the work that I'm doing, but for where the continent and especially the subcontinent is heading to, with the with the increase number of coups and counter-coups and constitutional changes. We were reading just his book and what he did as a leader. Because I I believe that we we are suffering from a leadership deficit on the continent. And and as a result of that, we don't have statesmen, we don't have states uh, Mm persons to really make those decisions, make those sacrifices that will be felt and benefited by generations um, after. So reading helps me to refocus and reset and protect my, my mind space and uh, of course like i said music the reason why music helps is that you you do the resetting and uh, to and by entertaining it's mm-hmm. entertainment which yeah. i'm sure you are familiar with. you educate and entertain at the same time yes. and uh, and it helps to just put us in positions you know when the heritage and the others live in another part of the world right but the experiences there are very relatable to our experiences here sure. If you listen to some of the songs, you think they'll be singing about your country, so that helps you to also bring you back that you are not alone in this. Uh, actually, before you came, there was a meeting that I, I was in, and we were talking about solidarity, and, uh, and these songs and those engagements help you to be in a space of solidarity, for you to empathize or sympathize with others. You know, we're all in in positions of privilege now but well, there are hundreds and thousands of people out there. Uh-huh. So what, when you hear these songs, when you read these books, and when you, you watch the news or read, read the news about what people are going through, unless you don't have a, a compassionate mind, you, you'll be able to like relate and empathise or just think of a way to help, in, in one little way, change that situation. Yeah. So, so for me, that is what I... But I also go back to my experience as a war well, victim. I think yeah. I have... To, at the end of the day, you have to come... Nobody wants, who has experienced war, mm-hmm. wants war or any form of conflict a few thousand miles nearby. Nobody wants that. So yeah. for those of us who have experienced it, those of us who have survived it, we get you know, apprehensive when things mm-hmm. that you know, yeah. kind of show up, yeah. things that are, so well, we have seen this before. You know? yeah. So uh, I, I was writing, this morning I was writing an article about the wounded society. No, we are living in a wounded society. And the woundedness is, is, is in the psyche, it's, it's emotional, it's psychosocial. It is not necessarily physical. Although those who war wounded or amputees will tell you the war is the wound is not just um, psychosocial, it's also physical. And I was writing it thinking, like there's not a single society that is not wounded. And and because of our experiences and because of historical experiences. This wound has been transferred from one generation to the other. So that also helps me to set my mind again to the work that I'm doing, Mm -hmm. you know, to help with healing these wounds, to help with ensuring that generations afterwards don't get even more wounded. We have to do something. And one way of doing something is this kind of dialogic processes, engagements and and discussions are providing solutions. I know a lot of people get um, fatigued. Yeah. And uh, but it only takes a few minds and people to stop doing things for danger to happen. Mm -hmm.
0: So that as you were saying this, I was thinking, okay, so how do we put you out of work? (laughs) You know, how do we how do we get beyond having to have a transitional justice organization? How do we so really looking globally, we are in the midst of. You know many conflicts, not just what's going on in the Ukraine. We're in the midst of many conflicts, and you you pointed out that we have a lack of state people, states states men, states women. I would say that there, if we had more state women, we probably would be in a better better situation. I'll see. I'll see, yeah. But how do you, in terms of solutionscape, where do you see yourself being put out of business? And I know you know think about that, but, yes. but let's, yes. let's put you yes. out of business. Where do yes. you see that happening?
1: So so. This is what, you know, we've been, those of us who worked in development, the the, the aim is to ensure that we are no longer relevant, right? You know, to be providing funding and support for people to deal with transitional justice. I think once we firstly replace the value for humanity and life, I think that is one of the, the, the cheapest and most devalued commodity in the world right now is human life until we, we, we revalue, until we, we put people at the center of our actions, then it will be just talk, 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 talk. talk. Mm-hmm. And, and that is why the ATGLF, we, 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 we're centering victims and survivors because they are the ones who can actually tell us how to fix the problems that we, we uh, were experiencing. So ha- talking about fixing, I think we need to fix our politics. Africa needs to fix its politics. And the politics is not just when it comes to elections, politics goes beyond. In fact, the worst form of politics actually happens prior to and after the electionary processes. So we have to fix our politics and fixing politics requires us to create the space and the, the platforms that people from all walks of life are able to contest elections for elective positions Women are given space and they are not subjected to all, some, all sorts of vulgarity and violence when, it, when they decide to come and, and stand for elective positions. And then, so that is, that is fixing politics, firstly bringing human life and respecting humanity and valuing human life. It's really critical because until you know that uh, your action will lead to somebody getting hurt, your action will lead to somebody getting killed, then you will be mindful with the kind of action that you take or the kind of utterances that you make. And then once we fix politics in terms of who we choose as our leaders, who the people that or the process of choosing our leaders and all of that, then we probably would be in a position where we start like reducing the need for conflict. Because the, the whole thing with us, what we do, if you find out the drivers for conflicts boil well down to you know, primarily two things, power and wealth huh? or affluence. So if we are able to decentralize power, by fixing politics, if we're able to take power and not just concentrate it in a few hands, then if you, if you all have power, there will not be fighting for it, right? For one form of power, and, and this we can refer to not just the power to hold, but the power to be held. And you know, you have different forms of power, the power over and the power to. So, until we decentralize both forms of power, fixing politics, then we will not be able to uh, move on. Another thing that we could, we could do is establish a, a facilitated situation where our societies are enlightened enough to reject indoctrinations from yes. people who come and lead us to conflicts. Huh? So, I have used the word enlightenment, not education, because we can be educated, but we're not enlightened. So we, we need to have an enlightened society to know the difference between the need to not fight and, and shoot your brother or your sister over a politician, or you need to not take guns to make a case, you know, to make a demand and you can actually do protests. But for us to do that, the leaders also have to be enlightened to understand that if you get criticized by your masses, you don't need to lock them up. You don't need to. So the enlightenment is both ways from the masses as well as the political and the so-called political elites. And um, another thing that I think um, could help is, uh, again, perhaps linked to politics, is where institutions are allowed to function in our judicial sector. We have, we have seen incidences of capture, right, the judicial capture. We, you're familiar with state capture. But for for a state to be captured, the various institutions are first captured and the judiciary is one of those institutions that is always firstly captured. The lawmakers are captured by this in parliament because when you start making bad laws, then they are badly interpreted to favor particular people. Then society is screwed. So we have to unshackle the grips on those institutions so that those institutions can function independently and efficiently for the masses, for the many, not the few. I could go on, but I think those ones, and of course, very importantly, you know, the women and our girls, you know, they, they form the highest number hmm, of the population, highest percentage of the population. Again, this might sound very cliche, give women more space. And I think if you go back to the fixing politics, yeah. if we fix our politics more, women will be will feel more comfortable to stand for elected positions. Sure. And then we'll have a situation where as equal competition or fair competition for those elected positions. Right,
0: right. I think that that is at the center of putting humans at the center, you know, like until we exactly. recognize who, who is best equipped to do that, yeah, exactly. Then, exactly. then that's... a things
1: should be some mm-hmm. merits rather than by uh, collections. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly.
0: So let me switch lanes a little bit and ask you a little bit more about who you are when you're not... Working,
1: <laughs> ha. Ha, ha, ha.
0: and I usually ask, "What are you? What are you? Are you, are you a listener? Fun, are you a reader or, or a watcher?" And I, you, have mentioned that you're a reader and that you are a yes. listener, so you listen to music. But aside from that, or or you can tell us what you watch. Who are you when you're not in work
1: mode? <laughs> when well, I'm not in work mode, a ah, fan, somebody who wants to be around people, happy and uh, promoting laughter mm-hmm. and uh, watching football. I'm a huge football fan. Okay, I support say? Manchester United. <laughs> okay. And my local football um, team in Sierra Leone is my, my school's football club, Old Edwardians FC. And here in Ghana, I'm supporting Hearts of Oak. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, I like to socialise. I do socialise. I go out. And I have fun. My favorite spots in Ghana is plus uh, two, three, three, 2 And for the live band and Wednesdays are my favorite days because right. of the Lipstick Band, which is an all-female band. Yeah. And I also do love to go some from time to time to the Sky Bar and to the Santa Cruz uh, restaurant. So, yeah, so I enjoy the beach. I do love enjoy the beach. I love yeah. going to the beaches and just and because I come from a coastal country as well yes. in Sierra Leone you know, and we have loads of beaches there. I don't need to pay to go to my beach. In some countries you pay. I think here you pay. So, so yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Here here mm. you pay for the better beaches. I took my father to the beach just yesterday oh, okay. and I used to go to Bojo Beach okay. in Coco, well, Botiano. Okay. And you know, over the years I've assessed it and you know sometimes it's worth now twenty-five cities, which yes. is equivalent to basically three dollars, yes. you know, now with okay. the rising yes. costs. But um I'm with you on the I'm willing to pay for beaches because I'm a little bit of a beach snob.
1: Okay. So I
0: will I will say that's that. It. But so on that note, which is your favorite beach here in Ghana?
1: So this is one sad thing because I have not been able to fully explore the beaches in okay. Ghana. I've only been to the Kosa Beach Resort which is in Cape Coast. Which is lovely. That's very amazing. lovely. Yes. Very I really like and, it. And, uh, yes, yes. yes. Yes, and I've been to Adafo. Okay. Uh, not, not the, the, you know, you have Ada okay. where you have the, we'll inside. Uh, so, and then you have Ada 4, which is a smaller side on the other side of yeah. the, so they, they have really nice beaches as well, clean, yes. and yes. Uh, so those are the ones because of COVID yeah. Yeah. and, you know, when I moved, I, I've not been able to really fully explore the places, it's yeah, it's so it's, it's, it's been a bit restrictive and, uh, yeah. which is a shame. But I I do, I enjoy my time at the beaches. I enjoy my time and I've been to, I like wildlife. Mm. Really like uh, Mm. forests and stuff. Uh, Those things really get me. Actually, if you're talking about resetting or going to those places will really help me to just bring me back to normal and (laughs) back to art. So I really love uh, the green and the beach. And uh, What else? Do I do for fun, apart from reading and uh, the other... I do, of uh, course, I mentioned watching football, right? Yes. But just hang out with friends, just interacting and socializing with people, whether sure. I open bars and pubs. Yeah. And uh, I'm also a Rotarian, and uh, I do community service right. as part of a Rotary. Yeah. Uh, Rotary's work. I'm a member of the Rotary Club of Accraire Road Central. Okay. So that also helps with my network building and um, friendship and building my own community of people. Yeah, Yeah, I think, I think those are the things I, so, outside of work, I'm just a regular guy who okay. um, and, and enjoys Watch having some sports, fun. Yes. Some good
0: food, yes. has some good drinks, and goes exactly. to the beach. I like, I like it. I like it. Well, this has been so lovely. I thank you so much for spending some time with me on this afternoon. So, before we go, I yeah. want to ask if you have any last words to share with our listeners.
1: Huh. So, this is why I'd have to put my elevator. <laughs> skills into the practice now. I think you know, my last kind of message would be for people to to be kind with themselves and be kind with each other. We are all traumatized and we should not re-traumatize each other by being horrible, being mean. We have to practice mindful communication. Mindful communication requires active listening and uh, engaging we people to really listen to people, not just with what they say or what what they are scared to say. Or, 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 um, uh, and I think for us, especially with the for those of us working in this field, one of the things that I have learned just in this space, a short period of time in the space, is people have ideas. You just have to listen to them and uh, give them the platform to share their ideas. And people have solutions. You just have to listen to the solutions with an open mind. And everybody has some element of kindness. You just have to demonstrate that you're also kind Mm -hmm. for them to bring that kindness out. And um, if we all have, it's hard for everybody to be positive, to be optimistic all the time. But if we can just try at least to demonstrate an element of optimism and positivity, the world will be different.
0: Those are great last words. Thank you for that. So this has been another episode of the podcast. I want to thank you for joining us. As always, you can catch new episodes each and every Tuesday at www.glocalcitizenspod.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Please do check out the show notes. We have rich, rich, rich show notes this week that you will find. And that's at the website. As well as always just great information for moving your self-discovery and discovery to another level. So until next time, bye for now.